The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chess, I would like to welcome you to this Chest Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your Chest Podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a great discussion of palliative care in COPD. We are very fortunate today to have Dr. Anand Iyer as our guest. Dr. Iyer and his colleagues wrote an article in the Chest Journal, The Role of Palliative Care in COPD. Dr. Iyer is an assistant professor in the UAB Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care and in the UAB School of Nursing. He is also an associate scientist in UAB's Center for Palliative and Supportive Care and is UAB's first ever recipient of a Paul B. Beeson Emerging Leaders Career Development Award in Aging, which is a K-76 from the National Institute of Aging to study the integration of geriatrics and palliative care for older adults with COPD and their care partners. He also created the PallyPulm hashtag on Twitter to advocate for palliative care in pulmonary and critical care and to grow the worldwide community of supporters. Thanks for having me, Dr. Winter, and go PallyPulm. <laughs> so let's start by discussing why you decided to write on this topic. Why are we talking about palliative care in COPD? That's a great question, uh, Dr. Winter. It's, a, it's an important topic. Like many things that I've been involved with, it starts at the bedside or at the clinic. I was seeing so many people with COPD who had comorbid anxiety, depression, caregiver issues, social isolation, uh, poor planning for the end of life. And I just kept on wondering why isn't any of this stuff getting addressed? And then looking into the data and publishing about it, we found that it's just significantly rare. And you and I both know these the people who are living and suffering with COPD have so many care needs as well as their that extend to their families. And so it's an important thing to integrate as soon as possible. And I just don't think people with COPD are getting it often enough, on, except for at the very end of life, which is not the time to do it. So can you give our listeners an overview of what palliative care actually like involves? And since they're commonly confused, how is it different than hospice? That's a great question. Even in my own qualitative research, pulmonary clinicians often interchange the two terms incorrectly. Um, saying a person's not ready for palliative care, they're not going palliative, all these terms that we kind of use in the ICU often. So to be clear, you know, palliative care is comprehensive support across several domains, physical, emotional, spiritual, social, and respite care needs. 
for people with any type of serious illness, and it's appropriate from the time of diagnosis. It supports a broad needs, has an interprofessional focus, and pre- prepares a patient and their family long before the end of life. Contrast that to hospice care, which is when a curative options for a terminal serious illness are no longer deemed appropriate and when a patient's supposed to have about six months to live. So those are two uh, ends of a spectrum, um, and they're not the same. And what are some of the established benefits of palliative care? The benefits that we're seeing draw from, first and foremost, the cancer literature uh, from Dr. Temmel's paper, and advanced, people with advanced lung cancer who received early palliative care had significant benefits and even a survival benefit. Uh, there's been shown to have uh, improved mood, quality of life, caregiver burden is reduced. Then you extend it to heart failure, and we're talking about reduced utilization near the end of life. And then into some data on COPD about improved care at the end of life, more deaths at home rather than in the hospital. Um, so we've got a pretty wide array of patient-centered outcomes from symptom benefit to health, reduced healthcare utilization and even costs, and then to a signal towards survival. And again, a lot of that's drawn from the cancer literature, and that needs to grow into the pulmonary literature a little bit more. And you mentioned earlier, as well as in your article, that palliative care is appropriate early for many patients and not just for terminal disease. Why is it important for palliative care to start earlier in a disease process? Uh, Great question. And I draw readers to our first figure um, that shows trajectories of serious illness. And from when they start with really decent well-being, they get the diagnosis and slowly but surely their well-being sort of decreases until they reach the end of life. And in COPD, that's often hit with numerous exacerbations throughout that course. And what is historically done is a referral to palliative care near the very end of life when symptoms are off the charts. Uh, severe, and people are often stuck in their ways. Not that there can't be a benefit, but it's very late. That's when we typically and historically are referring to palliative care. Even in my research, on average, a person with hospice is referred to hospice in the last month of life. So it's very, very late. Our argument, and drawn from, again, from the literature in advanced cancer, is that palliative care beginning much sooner can have a much more robust benefit for patients that we can start uh, assessing and managing severe symptoms in breathlessness, anxiety, depression, fatigue, and then we could start to have these evolving advanced care planning discussions that ebb and flow and change rather than sort of waiting till the very end to sort of begin that process. Um, so I think it's important for numerous reasons, but it's definitely just good to start that time clock sooner. And I'll keep it, put this point out there in our research, um, in, in published research, we showed that patients would actually like it to begin sooner. Um, maybe not mild COPD, but at least gold two, sort of FEV1, 80% or less. That's a reasonable point to start because there are people who have significant symptom burden then and maybe having frequent exacerbations who would also benefit from some aspects of that palliative care um, intervention uh, that, that early. So. We know that palliative care is a good thing and that it needs to be um, happening earlier and more often, but can you please discuss some of the barriers to palliative care involvement in COPD? Why is this not happening as often as we'd like? Yeah, I we wrote about this before, and I spoke with pulmonary clinicians and palliative care clinicians about this, 
exact topic, and it, it's not just unique to to the COPD or pulmonary world. There there are three big boxes that these barriers fit into: educational barriers, clinical barriers, and then sort of what I call operational barriers. And the educational barriers are these things like misconceptions, like we just talked about at the very beginning with your first question, terminology uh, problems, um, just getting it wrong what the definition is about palliative care and calling it hospice, to um, educational barriers about what the roles are for each clinician, that pulmonary clinicians think that uh, a palliative care team will narc, narc, narc them up, give them too many opioids and benzos until they have a respiratory failure event because of that, um, to clinical barriers like we don't know when to refer, what are the appropriate triggers, um, what's the timing, how do we do it, to operational barriers, there may not actually be enough palliative care clinicians to handle the uh, number of people with serious respiratory illness. And where's the time to do it in clinic and how do busy pulmonary clinicians even do it? So these are some of the three big boxes, educational, clinical, and operational barriers. So what is the role of the pulmonologist in palliative care? Should we be referring all of our patients to palliative care programs or should we be providing palliative interventions ourselves? And if the pulmonologist does initiate palliative measures themselves, when should we refer patients to a palliative expert? This is an excellent question and probably one of the most important. Given the, the significant uh, challenges in growing the palliative care workforce, I and other of my authors argue that a lot more should fall on the shoulders of the pulmonologist. You know, we, we develop these relationships over a long time. And then we start talking about trans, transplant for many of these patients and their families. So it, there's a lot of onus that needs to fall on us, but what does that mean? And that's why I created the Pally Palm term and the community. It's to sort of fuse the two disciplines into one. And through advanced training programs, graduate certificate training programs, and others, uh, pulmonary clinicians can gain some of those important skill sets, whether it be advanced communication to symptom assessment and management. Um, and then most importantly, knowing how to, you know, uh, pass the buck over to palliative care. What, how does that transition seamlessly happen? A, a pulmonologist or a pally pulmonologist would know when that time is, when they've reached the sort of maximum of, of COPD-directed therapies and, and pushing into refractory breathlessness and how to hand that ball off to a palliative care clinician or when to say, I'll do this, I'll assess for depression and anxiety, but I may not be able to manage all of it, but I'll at least be aware of it with a palliative care lens. I can see those problems. I can see the weight loss and cachexia and know they need nutritional evaluation, which palliative care team could provide. So it's a bit about having the knowledge base and knowing what to do um, or how to assess the problems and knowing that they exist, to then knowing how to define the roles and when those triggers and transitions to secondary or specialist palliative care should occur when things get a little bit too severe and out of the wheelhouse uh, of a pulmonologist. So let's talk then about how to incorporate palliative care principles into our practice. First, can you please discuss the role of interprofessional collaboration in palliative care? That's one of the greatest strengths about palliative care. It brings in interprofessional teams, um, therapists, uh, from music therapy to pet therapy to um, to psychological counseling to nutritional help. 
And so if you go to those clinicians, all of these members of the team are there in these clinics in the ambulatory setting. And so when we're trying to incorporate into uh, pulmonary, routine pulmonary practice for people with COPD, we, we presented the concept in our second figure. We drew from the National Consensus Project Domain for Quality Palliative Care, and we applied it to COPD across domains of physical, psychological, end-of-life care, and social, spiritual, and culture. And if you look at that figure, we sort of describe ways that we can go beyond just assessing the pulmonary symptoms and stretching that a little bit more. You know, I know I don't want to put too much burden on a busy pulmonologist, but I would argue that many of those um, extra pulmonary symptoms to the domain, like physical symptoms, pain, um, and, and then emotional symptoms like anxiety, depression, to questions about prognostication, to issues related to social isolation, spiritual, cultural stuff, these all feed back into poor outcomes for people living with COPD. So there's some onus to actually address these things. And so looking at those domains helps us to put the, um, sort of give you a practical tool on how to do it. Do you assess these physical symptoms? Do you assess and start to manage emotional symptoms? You start to have these early advanced care planning discussions, and then you start to bring in that interprofessional collaboration for spiritual care professionals, nutritionists, uh, social workers, case managers to help you into those sort of more complex social issues. So yeah, just draw the readers to uh, our figure two showing how that how that works. And even the the last table, which gives you very simple four cases drawn, they're hypothetical, but kind of drawn from practice about how you can integrate these principles into practice and when to refer to specialist palliative care. Now, one of the most common symptoms that patients with COPD report is breathlessness. So can you please give our listeners an overview of a practical approach to the management of breathlessness and COPD from a symptomatic perspective? Sure. Um, for me, it always starts with assessing it, using the tools to actually measure it so you can have a good quantitative measure of how well you're doing and improving it. So things like the Modified Medical Research Council Dysmia Scale or the UCSD Shortness of Breath Questionnaire, these are some that are out there that you can actually measure it. So starting it starting correctly means assessing that symptom and asking about it and then applying it to their lives and how how the breath assist is impacting their quality. But it, it, it extends into optimizing COPD-directed therapies, inhalers, nebulizers, um, ox, supplemental oxygen, then doing the important thing that's still not done often enough, cardiopulmonary rehabilitation. We don't have enough of that integration. It's one of the best interventions for breathlessness, anxiety, depression, and it's just not integrated enough. So you've optimized these. You start to move into advanced COPD therapies and the bronchial valves for those who qualify maybe uh, positive pressure ventilation for those who qualify, start thinking about the transplant evaluation. And then you move into the world of the, the, the talking to your palliative care clinicians, clinicians about the role of low-dose opioids. Um, studies have shown that even a recent JAMA internal medicine paper showed that it's effective, but it's also safe and doesn't increase car, uh, CO2 retention. One of the biggest concerns for pulmonologists is, is that you give low-dose opioids, they're going to have respiratory suppression and then might die from respiratory failure. In fact, it's shown to be safe. So transitioning across that spectrum of optimizing COPD therapies, 
starting to bridge into advanced COPD therapies and then thinking about low-dose opioids and then non-pharmacologic options like fans or uh, Tai Chi or yoga or something else that could help, a purse lip breathing, all these other strategies. So it's pretty broad, but working as a palliative pulmonologist or with the palliative care team, you can come up with the strategies and, and know when you've exhausted all there is in COPD world to sort of start branching out into these other other therapies. So let's talk about addressing psychological symptoms in patients with COPD. What psychological interventions are available and how should the pulmonologist be helping a patient access them? And I think you and I see this in clinic a lot. I mean, a lot of people think about a woman with severe anxiety and breathlessness and COPD. I think I've admitted some pe- many people like that in the hospital. Some of it's inherent to their breathlessness. Some of it's uh, a primary emotional um, condition, um, diagnosed depression or anxiety. It's not addressed often enough, especially in, in black males with COPD. It's, there's a lot of under-treatment or lack of treatment for these elevated symptoms. So part of it is assessing the symptoms um, in clinic, uh, using surveys to sort of measure their level of anxiety or depressive symptoms, and then starting to work with the primary care clinician or the palliative care clinician to start maybe pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic interventions first, cognitive behavioral therapy, counseling, that kind of uh, thing, to exercise. And then, of course, cardiopulmonary rehabilitation, again, is one of the best treatment for anxiety and depressive symptoms has shown sustained benefit. So integrating these non-pharmacologic options and knowing when to start pharmacologic therapy as well and how to titrate that. You know, you know pulmonologists don't get that kind of training after residency that, that much, so we don't feel very comfortable. But if we had the training through advanced programs and such, we could potentially know how to do the, the baseline level of this, the assessment, the early treatment, the referral to these other um, interprofessional colleagues and getting them involved early and then getting palliative care involved early as well. Uh, The biggest issue that the second part of that is that there aren't that many psychiatrists, uh, clinical psychologists around, especially in the rural deep South where we are. It's, it's rare to find that. And that is a huge problem, sort of uh, medic mental health access. So that, that's a totally different question for another time and discussion how to increase that access. But, you know, we've had some basics that we could start with. And how can we as clinicians help to better address social, spiritual, and cultural aspects of care for our patients? And it starts with awareness that those are issues, um, that uh, these social, spiritual, and cultural aspects play a huge role in how a person copes with an illness and how they define their their serious illness, um, how they involve their care partners to how they even look at the end of life and what that might um, what that might look like, what kind of interventions they'd accept. So, starting early with early advanced care planning and asking some of the questions about their their spirituality, their culture, or how that plays a role in their illness awareness. That's important to involving spiritual care professionals in the interprofessional team, case managers as well. They can all help to address the issues that we know, the social determinants of health that we know play a huge role in um, in COPD outcomes, you know, exacerbations, hospitalizations, deaths in the hospital versus deaths in the home, um, all of that. So 
starting with the conversation and talking to the to patients and their families, involving them all, and then involving our interprofessional team members. Are there specific things that we should be doing to prepare our patients for end of life? And when should we be addressing those things? Uh, specific things would probably be, you know, we've talked about it in the paper and elsewhere, that it's about starting these conversations about the end of life much sooner and you know, preparing patients for that trajectory of COPD and what it might look like. You know, I get, uh, I'll diagnose somebody who comes to me with moderate or more, or even more severe COPD, and they're worried that that's the cancer word, and they think they're going to die in a year. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about what this trajectory may look like, and then how things may evolve as we go along. So it's about opening that discussion to help them understand and build their what's called prognostic awareness so that they will know what the disease might look like and how these exacerbations might come and go um, and what to prepare for. And then to have these discussions about what that might look like at the end of life. You might require BiPAP uh, in the hospital. You might require a ventilator. Um, things may get pretty rough there. And should we start thinking about time trials where we spend a certain amount of time on the ventilator or not? You know, These are questions that could start earlier. Granted, I know that the, there's a lot of controversy about advanced care planning. I still am in the court that having these discussions and evolving them kind of set the tone that, about the relationship between the patient and, their, and the physician or clinician or practitioner. They help to open that up, and it helps to um, at least prepare and help to build some prognostication. And then to also think about what kind of caregiver needs will be needed at that time for respite care and bereavement and survivorship. So... That's the, I don't think we do that nearly enough. And that's the other half of the preparation for end of life is also preparing the family. And so having them all involved in the discussion is, is crucial. Um, so that's, it's important to do it. And then I would say just to start really early. Great point. So as we finish up this discussion, can you give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from our discussion? Palliative care is so much more than hospice. Um, it should begin at the diagnosis of a serious illness, evolve, ebb, flow, change, adapt to the patient, and prepare them long before the end of life for what that tra illness trajectory living with COPD is going to be like and brings in so many other team members and interprofessional help. I think this can be done by pulmonologists. I'd argue we need to step up and start to gain that training to do it on ourselves on the front lines. I, I think that's going to be the future. Um, so that sort of primary palliative care delivered by us as pulmonologists is going to be the way to go. And knowing when to transition to specialist palliative care is going to be important. So I, I would hope that the listeners learn that it's important to do to start early and, and really help our patients and their families build their quality of life. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. Iyer for a wonderful discussion on a very important topic, and a big thank you to our CHEST community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a CHEST podcast. Until next time. <laughs>